Over the past several months, we've been moving through a sermon series in Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 19, and our complementary passage is John's Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. So if you place your bulletin or your bulletin insert as a marker into your Bibles, I realize every time I say this, how increasingly irrelevant that statement is becoming as most of us go to uh, digital Bibles. But at any rate, if you place a bookmark in Exodus chapter 19, open your Bibles to Revelation 19, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 6, hear God's word. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 20 beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. 
And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we have read, we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts, and grant that we may be changed by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, I like for you to internally answer this question. I think generally, everybody knows what sin is, right? You know whether you're sinning or not sinning. When you go to that internet website, there's not, hmm, I wonder if this is okay or if I should not be doing this. When you're lashing out at another human being, when you're using your tongue to destroy another person, there's, there's not something, I mean, you may feel self-justified in it. You may feel that they deserve it because of what they've done to you. But you know what sin is. So here's the question. How do you view sin? How do you view sin? Do you view sin in the same way that you might view a hot fudge sundae? It's sweet, it's delicious, I know it's bad for me, it'll rot my teeth and it'll make me put on 20 pounds, I want it, but I know I shouldn't. Or, do you view sin in the same way that I would view liver and onions? I don't want it in my house. I don't want it on the breath of anybody I speak to. (laughs) I do not like it. Liver and onions is detestable to me. And so, I don't want to go anywhere near it. Now, if you're honest with yourself, would you not acknowledge that I kind of veer over to the hot fudge Sunday view A little bit more than I should. But now flip the question. How do you view holiness? How do you view holiness? That, that, I mean, and again, we all know nobody's in the dark. You don't have, you don't have a a sense of, you know, ah, I wonder, I wonder what God's will is for me. You know what it is. All the WWJD bracelets in the world. You and I both know, at a basic DNA level, what God wants you to be. What God wants you to do. How do you look at it? Do you look at it, eh, sort of in the liver and onions category? Where I know it's good for me, 
I know it raises whatever, whatever liver does for you, raises your blood count or something like that. It's supposed to be healthy. I know it's good for me. It's like medicine. I don't really, I'm not enthusiastic about it, but I know that I should be holy. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to read my Bible on a daily basis. I'm going to lead my family and family worship. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to lean into the covenant community. I'm going to do the things because I know that that's what's good for me. Or do you view holiness in the category of this is sweet. This is delicious. This is beautiful. The closer I get in my being to this beautiful Savior, this lovely Savior who so loved me and gave Himself for me that not a hair can fall from my head without my Heavenly Father's permission. This this Savior whose love for me makes me to know that all things are ordered for my good. Even the things I don't understand and even the things that I personally would never choose that He has ordered them for my good. I want to be like Him. I want to know Him better. And I want to love Him better. Again, if you're going to be honest, and I hope you are, you've got to admit that more often I find myself and you find yourself in the medicine category. I know it's good for me. I know I shouldn't. I know I'll be happier and healthier and all that. Maybe let's not use liver and onions. Let's use the gym. Because clearly I have a problem with going to the gym. I don't think that's a secret in anybody's eyes. I know it's healthy. I know it's good for me. I don't like it. I just don't like it. How do you view sin? How do you view holiness? I'm going to be depending on uh, a, a book in the coming weeks, and so I'm going to I'm just going to toss it out now, just so that anybody who who wants to double check or whenever you post sermons online, there's always plagiarism hunters that are uh, wanting to figure out how you're lying or cheating in your sermon. So, so this structure that I'm going to be following over the next several weeks, Lord willing, is very heavily influenced by a man named David Dorsey, and the book is, uh, I just dropped the name of it, um, The Literary Structure of the Old Testament. Very, very scholarly book, great book, uh, but, but he, he takes the Old Testament and, and really examines it as a piece of literature uh, and, and the literary structures that are there. And so what we're going to do this morning in looking at this passage. And we're going to come back to this passage, Lord willing, in the future. But this morning, I want to give you two angles on on this text. The first is the grand tapestry. The grand tapestry. And I've used this, this metaphor throughout this sermon series, that Exodus is the tapestry of salvation. Uh, it, it's the tapestry in which we see in, in pictures, in images, 
the gospel. Uh, it's one of the most gospel-drenched Old Testament books that there is. You, you've got the bondage to sin, the bondage to Egypt, the deliverance out of sin, the bringing to the holy mountain, the instructions for how to be holy, carrying through the wilderness, and then coming to the promised land. Uh, this, this metaphor for the Christian journey uh, that has been taken up in works like Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, this, this all flows out of Exodus and, and the, the other books of the Pentateuch. So as we look at this tapestry, I want, I want you to envision in your mind's eye this, this tapestry that really we're going to focus a section that begins with Exodus chapter 19, the previous chapter, and really continues on throughout the book of Leviticus to Numbers chapter 10. Because from Exodus chapter 19 to Numbers chapter 10, We've got one geographic location. The people of Israel are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. So everything that takes place from Exodus chapter 19 to Numbers chapter 10, I believe it's verse 14 of Numbers chapter 10, all takes place right here at this one place. And that is the people of Israel camped at Mount Sinai and engaging in this Sinaitic covenant. Now, this covenant, it, it, it's, you know, you, you've been around the Christian faith. If you've been around Christian language for any amount of time, you know that numbers are often very important. And so the number three is very important in terms of preparation. And, and so not only the three days here in Exodus chapter 19 that they're to sanctify themselves, but then uh, Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days, and that then is itself a sign that is given by Jesus Christ. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so must the Son of Man be in the ground for three days. So, so these numbers often have significance. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. And so that is why the Sabbath takes place on the seventh day. It's crowning, it's completing, it's perfecting all the work of creation. But these, these units that begin here in Exodus chapter 20 and run through Numbers chapter 10, there are seven literary units. And it's interesting that at the end of each of these seven literary units, we have a different theophany. Now, a theophany is simply an appearance of God. Theo, whatever phony means. <laughs> but, but, but a theophany is God appearing. And, and he appears in different ways. But at the end of each of these seven literary units, there is an appearance of God. And so the, our first unit, our first marriage treaty, uh, our, our first unit of this marriage treaty that is given to us here at Sinai is the marriage covenant itself. And that is what we know as the Ten Commandments. This is the covenant that the children of Israel agree to to enter into the marriage relationship with God. This is a marriage covenant. 
These are their marriage vows, let's say. And the theophany that, that comes at the end, we read, uh, is uh, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so our theophany, our appearance of God, is this thick darkness. And then beginning, and, and these divisions are going to be rough. There's, there's, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't work out perfectly with the chapters, but this is the literary units. We've got the judicial laws, the laws that are given to Israel as a nation in chapters 20 to 24. And then there's a theophany. Uh, at, at the end of that, and that is where Moses and Aaron see God's feet standing on sapphire. And then from chapters 25 to 31, we've got worship, laws regulating worship. And the theophany at the end of that is where Moses says, I want to see your face. God says, no man can see my face and live, but Stand in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand, and you can see my back. And he goes before him, and he presents the name of God. And then after that, we've got the tabernacle laws in chapters 35 to 39. And in chapter 40, we have another theophany, where we have this pure light that no one can look at, and it enters into the tabernacle. And then we have, in the book of Leviticus... The atonement in chapters 1 through 10 and and laws regarding sacrifices. Now, we don't have a theophany there, but the significant event that we have is Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire. And so in many ways, this is like a perverted theophany. Uh, God should be appearing in the fire, and yet they offer strange fire, and so God strikes them dead. It's like they interfere with the theophany and lose their lives for it. And then Leviticus chapters 11 through 18, we have the purity laws, and then Leviticus chapter 19 to Numbers chapter 10, we have holiness laws, and then that closes with the theophany of the glory cloud settling down over the tabernacle. So we've got these seven units, this perfect number of completion that is God's perfect completion of his treaty with the children of Israel. These seven units, the marriage covenant, the judicial laws, the worship laws, the tabernacle laws, the sacrificial laws or laws relating to atonement, the purity laws, and then the holiness laws. That is what God wants the bride to be. That's what the bride has said in the marriage chamber that she is going to commit to. Now, Exodus chapter 19 is where God invites the bride to come and share with him, to to come and enter into this marriage covenant. And you've got that beautiful language in Exodus chapter 19. I bore you up on wings of eagles and drew you unto myself. Isn't that the language of a lover? The the language of someone who desires to enter into not some, you know, dot these I's and cross these T's. That's not the language of Exodus chapter 19. And that's not the way that you and I should encounter the Ten Commandments or God's law as, as a burden 
as something that we're afraid of, as something that, that we look at as medicine. Uh, it's good for us, but we don't really want to do it. This is the language of a lover. I drew you to myself. Now come and be with me. Be my people. Be mine, and I will be yours. I mentioned last week that the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, the later prophets, when they accuse Israel of breaking this covenant, the covenant that God makes with them at Sinai, use the language of adultery. They say repeatedly that Israel in breaking God's covenant promises, God's covenant commands, in breaking those things, Israel is committing adultery and whoring after other gods. If you've read any of the Old Testament, that language is familiar to you. Well, the question then becomes, if that is adultery, when was the marriage? Because last I checked, you got to be married to commit adultery. And that is what leads us to looking at this as the marriage covenant. Now, if you understand the law in that way, I think it's going to answer a lot of conflicts. Because if there is any topic of Scripture that is controversial... <laughs> The relationship of the law to the New Testament believer has got to be right up there at the tippy top of all the things that we like to argue about, of all the things that we've got scads and scads and scads and scads of books written on. But I think if we view it in this literary structure, and I hope, I hope not only I've, I've communicated, but I hope to show you as we move through this that this is not me uh, forcing a theology onto this text. It's me trying to draw out the theology of the text itself. By its structure, it suggests to us, by the, by the way that it's structured, by the way that Moses wrote it, it suggests to us that he's giving us a theology of the covenant treaty that God makes with his people, A, as perfect. It's divided up into seven sections. B, as showing something about him, because we've got covenant treaty, picture of God. Covenant treaty, picture of God. Covenant treaty, picture of God. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a real sense in which in order to see God, you need to see the beauty and glory of this covenant treaty. Now later in the New Testament, because we all take just the most beautiful things and blow them up. We get into this issue of, can the law save? We get into this issue of people thinking, I can obey the law, and by obeying the law, I can be made right with God. It never was that way. David regularly tells, or often, I should say at least, in the, in the Psalms, calls the people to circumcise the foreskin 
of their hearts. It's always intended to show a deeper spiritual reality. It never was an external means of checking righteousness. It also shows us this this marriage covenant, this, this promise of a bridegroom to a bride, and the promise of the bride back to her bridegroom. How central the law is in the minds of the godly people of the Old Testament. So, I know that you're familiar with Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. And you probably are aware that Psalm 119 is an acrostic. Aleph and every verse in the first eight, first eight verses start with the letter Aleph. Bait and the first eight verses or the next eight verses all start with the letter Bait. Gimel, Dalit, so far, so on. Uh, the, the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet is the structure of the 119th Psalm and every verse in the 119th Psalm starts with the letter of the corresponding Hebrew alphabet. So that's probably not new information to anybody. Obviously, the Hebrew children, as well as the Hebrew adults, were supposed to memorize the entire 119th Psalm. That's why it's set up. This is a memory aid. So if there's a psalm, if there's a memory aid that is going to be at the very heart of what we want the covenant community to know, what would it be? Justice? A justice psalm? I mean, that's what we want the community to be. Outreach. Evangelism. I've, I've, I've heard people say, the only reason that you weren't raptured at the moment that you trusted Jesus Christ is so that you can stay here and win souls for Jesus. So then let's make the 119th Psalm all about evangelism. If that's our great purpose, if that's our central aim, then evangelism or whatever. Whatever, whatever we think the church should uniquely be marked as, whatever we think the covenant people of God should continually be reminded about, this is your identity, press it, press it, press it, press it. It's love for God's law. Now, does that make us legalists? Does that make us those dark Puritans? Those people that were convinced that, you know, there, there's always the danger that somewhere, somewhere, somehow, someone might be smiling. And we need to snuff it out. There, there, there's no reason for a Christian to have any kind of joy in this world. If you got joy, you're being frivolous and you need to be serious about your blah, blah, blah. Isn't that how we view people? that focus on God's law. Frankly, it's not a... I mean, sometimes they deserve it. (laughs) 
But if we step back and look at this as a marriage covenant, a marriage covenant, then the love for God's law is simply a bride's desire, passion, to be as good a bride as she can be. For this bridegroom who is perfect, who has given everything for her, who has redeemed her from the pit, this bridegroom who loves her so gloriously and powerfully that what she wants to do is love him just a little bit of how much he loves her. And so, beloved, that's how Moses structures the law. That's how Moses structures this Sinaitic covenant. That's how the rest of the Old Testament sees it. That's how you and I can truly from our hearts be in love with it. The bride is enraptured with the character of the groom. Secondly, very briefly, we're going to be coming back to Exodus chapter 20, uh, but, but very briefly, I'm just going to make a couple of broad comments about this particular marriage covenant. This particular marriage covenant that is known to us as the Ten Commandments. So the, the visual image is the bride and the bridegroom are standing there at the altar. And you know where the minister says, do you promise to do this and this and this, you know, until death do you part? And she says, I do. These are the marriage vows. The Ten Commandments are the marriage vows. And again, most of this shouldn't be new information for any of you. They're basically divided into two sections. Commandments 1 through 4 are how to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Commandments 5 through 10 are how to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is very particular ways, is dis, uh, distinct examples of what that looks like. What does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength? It means don't have any others before Him. It means don't make images and bow down and worship them. It means treat His name as holy. And and we'll see as we go through that. There are implications for that in terms of those who are made in His image. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, it means don't lie to them. Don't commit adultery against them or with them. <laughs> don't, don't steal from them. These are, these are pretty concrete examples of what it takes to love your neighbor as yourself. But you remember in Matthew chapter 19, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? Love your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Keep the law. What does the rich young ruler say? I've done all that. I'm a good covenant kid. Young people, did you hear that? (laughs) 
I'm a good covenant child. I've never been a bad guy. I've never done horrible things. And so then what does Jesus say? He says, okay, now give away everything you got. In other words, stop telling me how you know the law and do it. The rich young ruler walks away, sorrowful, because he had many possessions. Now, let's put it in some perspective there. Jesus is having that conversation within the time span of 30 to 33 A.D., his three-year ministry. Rome shatters Jerusalem and all of Israel in 70 A.D. Around 27 years later, that rich young ruler who turned his, li- he turned his back on eternal life because he had great possessions. 27 years later, those possessions were up in flames. Those possessions weren't his anymore. Beloved, this is what is important. This picture of the Holy Bride that we see here in Exodus chapter 20. Again, I'm using language that Reformed people are are very familiar with. This is plain, vanilla, Reformed theology. The three uses of the law. They're a goad to drive us to Christ. They point out our sin and they show us what holiness is. But let's take those three things that if you've got any theological reform background, you can rattle off easily. Let's take them and look at them just a little bit differently. The first thing about the Ten Commandments that we would say is that they are aspirational. It's what we aspire to be. I want to be someone who can honestly say that God is first in my life and there is no other. I want to be someone who says that the image of God is sacred and holy and that includes my fellow man made in God's image. I want to be someone who does not take his name in vain, who who does not do anything to disparage the credit and the character of God. I aspire to be these things. If I've got that attitude, then, beloved, sin is not a hot fudge Sunday. Sin is not a sweet treat that I need to be careful of because it'll rot my teeth. Sin is nasty. And I do not desire it. Secondly, It's not just aspirational. The law is also humbling. It should humble you. Because it shows what you and I are not. This perfect bride. Every time you encounter God's law, every time you come to God's law, you've got to see in yourself areas in which you fail. I'm not the perfect bride. You're not the perfect bride. It's humbling. A prideful Christian is not a Christian. 
Hear that clearly, because it's a warning. It's a serious warning. A prideful and arrogant Christian is not a Christian. Because you cannot be prideful. You cannot be arrogant. If you see what God calls you to be as his bride, and acknowledge that you're not, that you're not that, It's humbling. And then it does show us what a stunning, glorious, beautiful Savior you and I have. Someone that would come down into our brokenness. God says, be holy. And I don't even desire it. I don't even desire to be holy. I see holiness as that liver or that gym. It's good for me. I ought to. My life is going to be happier if I don't cheat on my wife. I can promise you that. <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't cheat on my wife, she's not going to yell. I'll have a happier life. Is that really what I should be aspiring to? Is that really what you and I should be setting as our standard? No, I want to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What a glorious Savior who does that. What a glorious Savior who takes someone who is so unlovely and says, I'm going to die for you going to redeem you. Beloved, what a beautiful, beautiful Savior. And so here in the law, I want you to see the face of your bridegroom. This is the character of God. And this is what God calls you and me to be. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful bridegroom. And then remember with Revelation chapter 19, the promise that He is bringing you home. He's bringing you to that place. That is the promise that is given to you and to me. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it. Will complete it. Beloved, you could no more be cast away from this perfect bridegroom than he could cast away his own son. Because you remember those three cables of love that, that, that bring all of Exodus together. God's love for the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's love for the glory of his name. And God's love for his son. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. And if you will not release my firstborn son, then I will kill your firstborn son. And then the writer, the New Testament points out, this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that firstborn son. Is the law, is sin as is the law beautiful in your sight? 
Is holiness beautiful in your sight? Or is sin beautiful in your sight? That's the question. If you're honest, on our best days, it's a little of both. On our best days, it's a little bit of both. Beloved, have this vision. Have this picture. Have this desire. Have this joy. Behold your bridegroom. Behold your beloved Savior. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this picture of holiness. Lord, we pray that you would first and foremost give us a love for that so that we may then grow more into it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.